Well, we appreciate your attendance here this morning as we come together to worship God and to encourage one another. And I invite you, as was already mentioned, to come back here tonight for the six o'clock hour when we'll worship again. And in particular, be here at five for that early bird singing that we do every month. I know everybody that's been coming to that has enjoyed that immensely. And then, of course, one more reminder about our homecoming, which is coming up next Sunday. Be sure to invite friends, neighbors, uh, anyone you can think of who is uh, a former member of this church. In particular, if you can think of people who you know are members here and maybe you haven't seen them in a while, this would be a good opportunity to reach out to them and try to invite them to, to be here with us. And I, I hope that will be a, a great day for this church and all of us who can be here together next Sunday morning. Of course, this is that time of year when we have a lot of things going on. It's just starting, and it seems it's one thing after another from here to the end of the year. And I'm not talking here just about our homecoming, but in just a little over a week, it will be Halloween. And in the United States and a lot of other countries, that's associated with a number of traditions. Dressing up in costumes, going from house to house, trick-or-treating. Fearsome, uncanny things like ghosts and vampires and skeletons. All of those build on ancient customs that in some cases go back centuries, even millennia. Mummers plays a practice in which costume groups would go from house to house and they'd put on a performance in return for food or drink. More darkly, perhaps, a belief that at this time of year in particular, the spirits of the dead or other supernatural beings roamed the earth and interacted with ours. So for that reason, some have objected to celebrating Halloween as a wicked practice. What's the origin of this day? To really understand that, we need to understand that the day after Halloween, November 1st, that's a holiday too. All Saints Day. This is a day set aside by the Roman Catholic Church and is practiced in some other religious groups to honor all saints known and unknown. And the idea of invoking and venerating saints began in the early church with the martyrs, those who were killed on account of being Christians by the Romans in the second century and in the third century. So for example, we have a ancient work known as the Martyrdom of Polycarp, written about the year 156, that talks about his death and how his followers would commemorate the birthday of his martyrdom every year going forward. And this sort of practice became increasingly common, bolstered by keeping the, the relics of those who'd been martyred for the faith. So the anniversaries of their deaths were honored. But then came the great persecution under the emperor Diocletian in the early fourth century. This was the last and the most severe persecution that Christians underwent. So many were martyred, so many died, that it became impossible to commemorate individual days for each one of them. But the church felt that they should still be remembered. 
And so they set aside one day in the calendar to commemorate all martyrs. Later on, they added some others who they felt because of their lives, their saintly lives, should be remembered also. Now, originally, this feast of all saints was set the day after, or the Sunday after, the week following, the feast of Pentecost. It's still observed there in the Eastern Orthodox churches. But in the Western church, the day for this feast was fixed on May 13th by Pope Boniface IV in either 609 or 610. The ancient Roman pantheon was gifted to the church in that year, and the Pope dedicated it as a church to Mary and the martyrs. And he set up this feast dedicated to those martyrs, to all saints, on May the 13th of that year. Why May 13th? Christians were originally a minority group, persecuted, killed by the government. But after Christianity was, first of all, legalized and then eventually became the official Roman religion, where before you weren't a Christian unless you really believed it because it was costly, you might die. Afterward, everybody's a Christian. A lot of people coming from pagan backgrounds who really didn't believe it. They just went along because it was to their advantage out in the world. And so consequently, they were carrying along a lot of these pagan customs. The church then became increasingly adaptable trying to appeal to these pagans, trying in some cases to sort of take over their customs and Christianize them. May 13th was the culmination of an ancient Roman feast known as the Limeralia, where it was thought that the spirits of the dead were active, in particular evil spirits. And in order to propitiate those spirits, May 13th was the culmination of the feast. To propitiate those spirits, you would walk around your house barefoot and take handfuls of black beans and throw them out to them. Because apparently nothing appeases a ghost like beans. They're insatiable for beans. Uh, Seriously, you would... The head of the household at midnight would go out, walk around, throw these beans over his shoulder, and he would say, with these beans I redeem me and mine. And everybody else would bang pots together and say, be gone, spirits of my ancestors. It's kind of a strange ritual. But at any rate, that was the day for it. And the thought was that the church could take these people, hey, you're used to already remembering the spirits of the dead on this day. Why don't we take that over and let's remember the spirits of the, the saintly dead. And, you know, we can scrap the the bean thing too along with that so they're just co-opting an ancient practice here so how did it get moved from may 13th to november 1st then well that dates from a century or so later the mid 8th century another pope gregory the third moved it because it coincided with a celtic harvest festival called Samhain, where it was thought much like the romans thought on may 13th that our world and the other world, the lines became blurred and spirits and fairies could interact with us more readily. In other words, the same idea, trying to take over a pagan festival and turn it Christian, just used now with a different culture. Now, during the Middle Ages, it was common for feast days 
to have vigils the night before. That's where Christmas Eve comes from. It's the vigil the night before Christmas Day. Over time, the vigil the night before All Saints Day or All Hallows Day, All Hallows Eve, became shortened to Halloween. And some of those same ancient customs and practices and associations with the dead and with spirits were maintained. Why all of this story? Maybe you found that interesting, maybe you didn't. I relate all of that primarily because I'm interested in the concept, this origin of a day to commemorate all saints. And it's not because I think that we should take up that practice. It's not something that we find in Scripture. I think it actually gives a greater degree of honor and reverence to human beings than is deserved. But the idea of honoring all saints reminds me of something that is a spiritual truth. That is that we, all of us who are Christians, we are all saints. That's something that the New Testament tells us repeatedly. All Saints Day is set aside for all saints, known and unknown. By that, it's meant those who have experienced God. They're there with God in heaven. And the known ones are those formally recognized by the Catholic Church. That is what we would normally think of when we think of saints in the common use of the term. Those who've been officially uh, venerated, elevated to sainthood. But that's not how the New Testament uses the word saint. Scripture applies the word saint to everyone who's in Christ. Paul, for instance, frequently uses this term in the opening to his letters. Just to give you some examples, starting with his first one in the order there in Scripture, Romans chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you flip over to the next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified literally means set apart as saints, made saintly. Sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. On and on we could go with this. You see, that's just Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the first three letters we have recorded. This usage is characteristic of the way the word saint is employed in the Bible. And the title saint isn't reserved for some select supergroup of dead Christians. It's applied to everyone who is in Christ. Without exception, all Christians are saints. And I suggest to you that that concept is extremely significant. That word translated as saint is the same word that's translated as Holy, holy, set apart, sanctified, 
distinct to the extent that some modern translations, because we have a lot of baggage that with that word saint, we don't really know what it means, they'll translate the word as holy ones, God's holy ones. And when this term is applied to God's people in the New Testament, it's always used collectively. It's always used of the church as a whole. That is, there's no thought in the New Testament of a, of a Saint Peter or a Saint Paul or anything like that. It's never used as a, a title. It's never even used as an individual, a, a personal designation. Instead, it's the community, God's people as a whole that are saintly, that are holy. The church is holy the church is an assembly of saints. What does that mean? Why is the church holy? Why are we collectively God's holy ones? It's because the church is the body of Christ. We become, as a group, as a body, what Christ is. And among other things, Christ was the holy one. That's a term that's used of him frequently. Peter calls him the Holy One in his sermon in Acts chapter 3 and verse 14. It's a term by which an evil spirit acknowledged Jesus. Mark chapter 1 verse 24. I know who you are, Jesus. You're the Holy One of God. Peter, in John's gospel, it's the term that he even uses there in the parallel of his confession of who Jesus is. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John chapter 6 and verse 69. You see, we're holy because our Lord is holy. It's not because we've done anything great. It's not because of our own personal worthiness or any acts that we've accomplished we're only holy as a result of the grace of God that comes through Christ. Paul sums up this idea in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. Actually, Ephesians, by the way, is also addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus. It's worth pointing that out back in verse 1. But verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. If we are in Christ, then God declares us to be saints. God declares us collectively as a group to be holy, set apart, sanctified, distinct, that's a tremendous blessing that we ought not to forget. Paul calls it a blessing here. This is one of the things God's blessed us with in Christ. But with that blessing comes a challenge. Because God's asked us to live up to that. He's asked us to become in reality what he's already declared that we are in Jesus when Jesus came and he took on human form, he revealed God 
in the flesh. He revealed God's holiness. We beheld in him the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John puts it that way in John 1.14. So as the Holy One, Jesus reminds us that we serve a holy God. But that's not something that's new or different. God revealed himself repeatedly as holy to the Israelites. We find it all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the term holy one is frequently applied by Isaiah to God, just for one example. The reason this is practically important, we're God's people. We serve a holy God. That means we are called to be holy. We're called to be what God is. In giving the law to Israel, God made this the basis of the way they were to live. This refrain is repeated over and over again in Scripture, but just one example. Leviticus 19, verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The character of God's people is determined by God's nature. We're to be holy. Why is that? For, because, I, the Lord your God, am holy. So God not only declares that we're holy as a people in Christ, he says, you need to go out and make that reality. You need to practice holiness in your lives. And that means we're to live our lives in a particular way that reflects God's holiness out to the world. The Apostle Peter makes that really clear in his ethical instructions in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Quoting from the Old Testament, he says this applies to us. God's people are called to be holy. That's the foundation for all of his commandments, his ethical instructions that follow in this letter. God's people are to be holy, different, set apart. We're to live our lives in a peculiar way. What does that mean, Peter? He spells that out. Because you're holy, practice brotherly love, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Because you're holy, get rid of sin in your life, wickedness, and long to grow, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Because you're holy, you need to be a, a living witness to God in this world. Verse number 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You need to live as holy 
different from the rest of the world so people can see that and they'll be led to God too. And then the rest of this in this chapter and into chapter 3 is talking about the specifics of that. Because you're holy, submit to the king. Because you're holy, wives, submit to your husbands. Because you're holy, husbands, love and honor your wives. Because you're holy, love each other. Because you are saints, God has called you to live like saints. Now that seems like a tall order. (laughs) based on what we normally think of when we think of a saint. Yeah, that's something great to aspire to, but I can never possibly live up to that. And it's true that we'll never be perfectly holy like God here in this life. But we do know that it's possible through his power to live faithfully. We have a number of examples in Scripture of people who did just that, who lived holy lives. And if we want to think of saints in that common way that we use it as great heroes of the faith, we have a long list of them in Hebrews chapter 11 that we can look to to inspire us. Just to name some of the ones mentioned here, these great saints of God, Hebrews 11, down in verse number 7, he mentions Noah. Now, Noah was a holy man, wasn't he? He was a man apart, separated, living completely unlike the rest of the world. It was that reason that he was singled out by God. Here's a righteous man in the midst of the wicked world. And because he was singled out like that, he was warned by God about the destruction of humanity, coming down in a way that had never been witnessed before don't you know it was difficult for Noah to remain holy to remain faithful when people probably talked about him as crazy out here in the middle of nowhere building this giant boat because of rain that's coming when no one's ever seen rain before let alone a flood what's this he's talking about you sure you heard God Noah maybe that guy he's just crazy But Noah remained faithful. He remained holy, even in the midst of that difficulty. And the writer says he becomes an heir of that righteousness that comes by faith. The next verse, chapter 11, verse number 8, we have Abraham. You think about how Abraham was different. Abraham was called by God up out of the city of Ur, the most advanced civilization of its day, to go to a place he didn't even know where that God would show him. Abraham, who was told that in his old age, He and his wife, Sarah, would have a child of promise. Abraham was then told to go and to sacrifice that child who'd been promised to him. Abraham passed every test of faithfulness. So when we get discouraged about looking different, being different from the rest of the world, here's the example of Abraham. If you follow God, people are probably going to think that you're a bit strange because... God's ways are not the world's ways, and we're called to be holy as God is holy. And that means we're set apart. We're different. We're distinct. But Abraham tells us to listen carefully to what he says, to follow in his steps, and to trust him. Or you could drop down. We talk about Abraham for a while here in this chapter. We could drop down to verse 22 and see the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. In Egypt, he was accused of a crime he didn't commit. 
out of a desire to remain holy. His master's wife wanted to sleep with him, and he said, how can I possibly do that? Sin against my master and against God? He wanted to keep himself holy. He was thrown into prison, falsely accused. He languished there, seemingly forgotten, down about as low as a person can possibly get. But one day the tables are turned, and suddenly he's up about as high as a person can get, elevated to that right-hand position of Pharaoh, prime minister of Egypt. And yet here, when things are going well, he still remains holy. He had the opportunity to take vengeance on his brothers who sold him into slavery, and he didn't do it. So here's Joseph reminding us that we can be holy in difficult times. We can be holy when everything is going well, too. The list goes on. There's Moses in the next verse who chose a holy life over the pleasures of Egypt. There's Samuel, there's David, there's more besides. This great cloud of witnesses, as it said in our text that was read a few minutes ago, there to, to cheer us on. They remind us to serve God, to live this distinctively holy life, to remain faithful to him. And of course, I'd remind all of us that we not only have these examples from Scripture about holy living, each of us has examples in our own lives we could think of. You could think of those dearly departed saints that you've known. Maybe it was a Bible class teacher from when you were a child. Maybe it was your mother, your father, one of your grandparents. Maybe it was an elder. Maybe it was a preacher. Whoever it was, we need to be inspired by those saintly examples of those who've gone before us and to remember that we have a responsibility to be a holy example to others around us who may be looking to us in being holy we can look to all of these but preeminently we can look to the holy one to jesus back to our text that was read a few minutes ago hebrews 12 verse 1 therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted." We might think that living lives of holiness is an impossible standard. And so we might be tempted to become weary, faint-hearted. But I would remind you one more time that Christians are called holy, are called saints repeatedly in Scripture. To go back to just one of those examples, I read twice 1 Corinthians from 2 Corinthians. If you remember anything about the church in Corinth, that's about as messed up as a church could possibly get. They had sexual immorality that they were openly not only tolerating but even flaunting there and they needed to get rid of. They were divided into factions to cliques around different personalities. The rich were lording it over the poor. They were going to take each other to court, suing each other. They abused the Lord's Supper. On and on and on we could go with these things. 
This is a church with a lot of problems. And yet, Paul says, you are saints. You're God's holy ones. No matter how flawed we are in our own lives, God has created us to be holy in Christ. Let's rejoice in that, what Paul calls a great blessing, that God has made us this holy nation. And let's resolve then to endeavor to the best of our ability to become in reality what God says we already are in Jesus. Let's shape our lives in response to this holy God and live lives of personal holiness. Let's look to the example of those great saints who've gone on before us and above all else to the Holy One, Jesus, modeling our lives after him so that at the last day we can be counted among God's saints in heaven. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you've never become part of God's people. You're not part of those holy ones. You don't have that promise of being with God eternally. If that applies to you, I'd urge you to take the necessary steps to become part of that holy nation this morning, to place your trust in Jesus, to turn to God in repentance and be buried in the waters of baptism where your sins are washed away, where you're created anew as a holy one and added to that holy people. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, but you haven't lived that life of holiness, of distinction, of righteousness the way that you should, and you need to make changes in a public way. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you this morning, we urge you to respond now to the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.